Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. There have been a lot of gloom and doom stories written about U.S. leveraged loans. Issuance has reached a record pace so far this year. The total outstanding debt has surpassed its sister asset class of U.S. junk bonds. And some people are getting worried about weak covenants and other issues. Joining us now to tell us how concerned we really ought to be is Christopher Remington. He is a portfolio manager at Eaton Vance focusing on leveraged loans, which are also called bank loans. And he joins us now. Christopher, thank you so much for being with us. Do you think that the gloom and doom that we've heard, the sort of rising risks and the weaker standards, do you think that that's an accurate portrayal of the asset class? Not really, Lisa. Thanks for having us on. Um, certainly, there's been uh, a going storyline in the market uh, that there's been sort of hog wild credit risk taking place. And uh, certainly, there's been an uptick in M&A, as you've alluded to earlier on your show. That's normal at this point in the cycle. Uh, certainly, plenty of things to watch. Um, but we think that overall, uh, the sort of risk character in the market is pretty typical of what it is at this stage in the cycle. Uh, you pointed out the market is growing. Uh, the so-called bonanza and issuance, when you start to back out refinancings, which is just a recycling of existing paper or uh, um, um, refinan- uh, refinancing, basically um, the net number is much lower. The market's grown by about 10% looking back over uh, the past year. Uh, and that's following what had been a dearth of, of issuance for a couple of years before that. So the market's catching up. There has been a good amount of issuance right. this year. But that's really just a reflection of um, the M&A machine, and that's on the back of what's been a pretty sound uh, U.S. economy. Fair enough. Sound U.S. economy for now. The last time we saw a boom in M&A that was funded by the leveraged finance market reminds me, frankly, of 2006, 2007. It wasn't so pretty after that. Some people are concerned that a lot of companies are raising money in the loan market and not raising money in the bond market. And therefore, there is no real advantage to being first lien, to basically having uh, get the sort of first recoveries in a bankruptcy and a liquidation. What do you make of all of that, though? Uh, I wouldn't suggest there's any causality between the fact that there was a lot of issuance in the bank loan market and the Great Recession that ultimately followed. Uh, they did follow in time order, but one had little to do with the other. Um, in the in the uh, sort of broader context of bonds versus loans, I think you know the attractiveness of loans today um, is, is certainly one that can be made in absolute sense. But uh, really, it's all about relativity. If you're the investor, you have multiple sort of pieces to the puzzle you're trying to balance in a portfolio. You look over on the equity side of your portfolio, and you have stocks trading at all-time ever highs. I think stocks have lost, I'm pretty sure, something like half their value twice in the last 15 years. Uh, that does happen in a recession. Over in bonds, you have the headwind of rising interest rates. And uh, with the Fed on the move, there are relatively few places to position in fixed income land where you actually get a benefit uh, from a uh, Fed raising interest rates. And this is definitely one of those neighborhoods. So folks who are coming in to the asset class, I think, are doing it from the standpoint of pretty good reasons. They're searching for yield. Uh, yield is hard to find today, but they're also searching for the absence of duration. Um, certainly, uh, good, there are 
risks in our market, uh, credit risk, liquidity risk, but it's not bond risk. And so investors are trying to balance those things. And I, th- I think for good reason. Christopher, have you witnessed money managers pushing back on deals that are too aggressively priced? Uh, well, I can tell you, I work here at an asset manager uh, that is indeed doing that. Uh, so there's been plenty of uh, issuance as you, you started out the segment uh, talking about, but there's also been plenty of deals to turn down. Um, our turn down rate here at Eaton Vance has averaged about 70% year to date. So I would characterize um, those largely coming on the back of smaller deals um, and also uh, deals that have weaker structures. Um, so I'd say the the overall sort of temperature of the market is good economy, generally good, uh, about average um, credit risk profile, but with weaker documentation, weaker structures. And that's where we're really digging in and drawing the line. So what are some recent popular deals that you've drawn a line on? For example, was the Thomson Reuters deal uh, one that you were buying into or staying away from? Well, that's definitely one of the the big ones uh, to date. Um, We're active in the name uh, at the moment, so I can't speak uh, in great detail about it, but I will tell you that uh, that is a deal that would absolutely um, hit on those topics that I just mentioned. Good company, uh, somewhat uh, weak structure, uh, and if we are participating, it'll definitely be on the more conservatively positioned uh, in our portfolio. Definitely some things to watch there um, because of those structural issues. Probably going to play out just fine, but we think there's likely an opportunity to buy it cheaper sometime down the road. Thanks very much for being with us. Uh, Christopher Remington, Director of Income Product and Portfolio Strategy, also Institutional Portfolio Manager for Floating Rate Loans at Eaton Vance. The topic is Brexit. Earlier today, UK Prime Minister Theresa May said that the European Union must treat the United Kingdom with respect in Brexit negotiations. In a statement in which she read at Downing Street, she said that EU leaders to reject her plan with no alternative at this late stage of negotiations was not acceptable. Let's find out if it really is unacceptable. Ian Wishart is our European government reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from Brussels. All right, Ian, is it really unacceptable? I thought everything in these negotiations seemingly is acceptable, except an agreement. Exactly. It's either all acceptable or all unacceptable. It depends on your perspective, really. Um, The EU has made its position clear and has pretty much stuck to its position for a year. The UK says it doesn't like it, and a year on is still saying it doesn't like it. Where do you go from there? Well, nobody really knows. Everybody still thinks that at some point, and time is running out, but at some point they'll get a deal. But nobody quite knows how that will come about because, as I say, both sides are completely talking um, in, in different ways from different positions and nobody seems ready to concede even one letter to the other side. So um, who knows what's going to happen? I think all the smart money are, is on an agreement being done eventually. But at the moment, both sides are doubling down, both sides are digging in. Prime Minister woke up to newspaper headlines saying she'd been humiliated by her EU leaders at the summit in um, in Salzburg in Austria overnight. So where do we go from here? I think it's going to get very messy indeed. Ian, I've got to say it hasn't exactly been smooth sailing before this, right? I mean, it's been a mess all along, and this seems to be a sort of escalation of that. I'm just wondering, does this 
increase the chances of a hard Brexit? And if so, to what degree? I mean, right now the pound is plunging versus the dollar by the most since 2017. Yeah, I mean, this is the the scariest, if you like, the scariest point we've had so far in the Brexit negotiations because it's less than two months, really, before the deadline, the real hard deadline where they need to get a deal and two sides are as far apart as ever. Um, You ask diplomats behind the scenes and they all still say on both sides that getting a deal is more likely than than not. Um, So I think we have to assume that, that that is the case, that behind the scenes, around the negotiating table, There is movement. Discussions are being had. But politically, it's very difficult to see where where the compromise is made. The the speech that Theresa May made an hour or so ago meant that she really dug in. She really said this proposal that the EU has put forward would see the breakup of the United Kingdom. And she can never let that happen. Now, the EU is saying that's the only proposal we're prepared to offer. So where do you go from here? I mean, it's it's. It's not easy to see where any optimism comes from. So it's also very obvious that a hard Brexit, that no deal, that a really messy divorce is is also entirely possible. Ian Wishart, is there any conversation about the negotiating style and tactics? I mean, number one, negotiating in public. Number two, drawing these seemingly firm arguments, but then not having any wiggle room to actually have a negotiation, and then to talk about Northern Ireland when Theresa May's government depends on the support of Northern Ireland members of parliament, correct? Exactly. Everywhere you look, there's there's pitfalls and obstacles and, and dead ends. Um, it's quite clear that both sides over the past 18 months, two years, have made mistakes. Most of them have mistakes have been made by the UK side. Most of the things that the UK said it would never uh, would never accept, they have accepted. So the EU clearly has the upper hand and has had throughout the entire process. Now we're coming right to the crunch. And it, as you say, it's all about now the Irish border. It's all about Northern Ireland. What the EU says it wants to do to protect its own integrity, as they call it, of the single market, which means protecting the flow of goods and customs controls into its own single market, depends on getting something arranged for Northern Ireland. What it says it wants, the UK and Theresa May is saying she can never accept. These are red lines, but something has got to give. Ian, just 20 seconds here. When you go to the pub or when you walk around, and just the average person on the streets of London, how concerned are they about this? How much are they following the details? They're not following the details at all, really. <laughs> all right. What they want to know, what they want to know is, is there going to be a deal or isn't there going to be a deal? Is Brexit going to happen or isn't Brexit going to happen? And even those of us who speak to the people who know can't really say for sure what the outcome will be. And that's the scary thing about the Brexit process at the moment. Ian Wishart, thank you so much for joining us. Ian Wishart is European government reporter for Bloomberg News. A big question and angst in markets these days. At what point will the rising benchmark rates in the United States dampen 
interest in riskier assets. And here to answer the question is Tony Scherer, Director of Research and Co-Portfolio Manager at Smead Capital Management with $2.3 billion of assets under management. Uh, so I'm just wondering, Tony, we've been hearing about this, that at, one, at some point people are going to go back into government debt and avoid the riskier assets that they've basically been forced into during financial repression. We're not seeing that yet. When will it occur? It's a great question. It's been years as cheap money has uh, been flowing around, whether it's private equity money or whether it's just the, the, as you say, riskier assets that have gotten away with not having to show real earnings or free cash flow. And that has gone on for quite a long time. As yields go up, you'll have something to compete with that, right? And so, uh, you know, we don't know when, but we do think that the economy is going to be far more resilient in the next several years than even the consensus right now would tell you. You you listen to Jamie Dimon talk about the 5% on the 10 year a couple years out from now. And if that's driven by economic growth. Do you buy that? We do. We you think do. you think that there's going to be five percent treasury yields in a couple of years? <laughs> it's historically not <laughs> not asking a lot, actually, right? I mean, we just are in a a ten year look back where that looks like a really big number right now. But you go back into a longer term time frame, it's really not asking a lot. And so, no, we don't think so. We're at a four point something percent, four point two, I think, with the last print on GDP right now, with unemployment lower lower than that. How long is that going to persist without yields eventually starting to reflect some upside on the longer term treasury bond? Tony, I got to ask you about one group of stocks that has been leading the market higher, and that's technology. Want to know about this idea of financial euphoria and why you believe or if you believe that holding technology and growth stocks could permanently damage investors long term success? That's uh, from a letter from Smead Capital, anyway. Great question. The short answer is yes, okay. absolutely. All manias and euphorias don't end well. You know, the internet changed our lives coming out of 1999 until 18 years later to today. It changed your life. But when most of the capitalization went towards those ideas, right? you know, you lost your shirt in the subsequent three years, whereas the undercapitalization that was going on in value stocks and other forgotten about, you know, the old economy type stocks, you didn't just do relatively well, you did nominally well in the next couple of years, right? You could you could just tr- absolutely beat the market. So you'd, ra- so you'd rather, let's say, and I'm not uh, picking on one stock for any reason, but I mean, you'd rather go with a McDonald's and a Coca-Cola than you would Facebook or Amazon.com. Uh, abs- absolutely. Okay. The, you know, I, we wrote a piece here recently about that mania and we went back to 2011, just as a case in point, when no one was really thinking about FANG stocks, that was a point in time where we were looking at another recession, in that case, a double dip recession. And what you were thinking about then was GLD, right? Gold, the gold ETF had more money sucked into it than the SPY is the broad market ETF at $78 billion. Okay. You fast forward to today, the GLD has $29 billion in it, and the SPY has $290 billion in it. You should have been taking risk back then, but you were buying bonds, and gold was up 45% that year. The market, the S&P, had an intra-year downdraft of 19.5%, and people were scared, right? But you should have been taking risk then. Fast forward to today, no one is thinking or caring about that stuff. They're only thinking about the thing. So you've got, in our view, massive, massive overcapitalization in, in a very narrow set of stocks. And that's been exacerbated by the amount of money that's gone into passive. This yeah. agnostic money that owns this stuff that they don't know 
really what they own or how uh, poorly exposed they are. So let's talk about your portfolio. How have you adjusted it uh, most recently in terms of stocks, bonds, and within stocks, the types of stocks? Great question. So, I mean, for us, what this offers, what this capital misallocation offers us is some cheap stocks that have been left for dead and really forgotten about uh, in comparison to the overexcitement in FANG. So we've been adding to our position in Walgreens, Boots Alliance, for instance. Uh, You know, we've been adding to Target, Kroger. Uh, We've been adding to some of the cheaper stocks that no one cares about. A newer name for us is Discovery Communications. And if you aren't Netflix, okay, you get discounted in old media land almost across the board. Discovery is incredibly cheap. We think it offers. They just did a deal with Hulu. Uh, They did. Discovery is going to now offer their content on the Hulu website or the Hulu streaming service. That's right. And that's exactly what they said they were going to do when they did the deal with Scripps Networks, when they when they combined. Right. They're going to bring the Discovery channels. Excuse me to uh, to the same over-the-top platforms as Script ne- Networks has had. So real quick, what about yeah. uh, bonds versus stocks? Well, I mean, yields we think are going to be rising here. So you don't like bonds? No, we don't like bonds. Okay. You don't like any bonds? And, and how long have you not liked bonds? Well, you're like approximately a decade. We're an equity. <laughs> we're an equity manager. But no, we do think that we're going to be in a, in a well, we think also and we haven't talked about inflation. We think inflation, but also economic growth is going to drive rates higher. So you don't want to be, you know, owning bonds. High quality, value oriented equities, we think are going to be a place that you can win, not just relatively, but nominally as well. Well done. Thanks very much for coming in and sharing your thoughts with us. Tony Shearer is Director of Research, Co-Portfolio Manager for Smead Capital Management, helping to manage more than $2.2 billion. They're based in Seattle. He's talking about adding to positions in Walgreens Boots Alliance, Target, Kroger, and Discovery Networks. David Nealman is a serial airline entrepreneur, founder of JetBlue Airways, also founder of Morris Airways, also founder of WestJet Airways. Also, he is going to have a new airline, a low-cost airline. And here to tell us all about it is George Ferguson, Bloomberg Intelligence's own expert when it comes to all things aerospace and defense. This is an interesting story, uh, George, that uh, David Nealman is going to be taking those A220 jets that were developed by Bombardier, formerly known as the C-Series, and he wants to start a new airline called Moxie. Does the world need Moxie? Well, so yeah, I think principally he's going to be flying U.S. routes, and I I can't always speak for the entire world, although I try sometimes. But uh, I think the U.S. doesn't necessarily need another airline. We have a lot of capacity. Fares are under pressure. Margins are falling for airlines. Um, he's going to try to wedge Moxie in here. I think it's going to be difficult to make a lot of money with Moxie. All right, but this is the founder of JetBlue, so he has some experience, and JetBlue has done pretty well, right? I mean, they've done, uh, gotten a lot of market share, and they have a model that is being emulated by others. I'm just wondering, I, I mean, I personally would kind of enjoy it if somebody offered even lower fares out there. What's the problem? <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think everybody wants lower fares. I think that's a that's a good thing. Uh, so again, but it, the more you cut fares, the more everybody else cuts fares, the more difficult yep. it is to make a profit in this business. But George, uh, hold on a second, because actually ahead. prices have been going up steadily. I don't know if you've noticed it, Pim. I don't know if you've noticed it, but it's been <laughs> going up pretty dramatically. And now you have to pay for your overhead luggage and you have to pay for uh, the oxygen that you breathe. So, I mean, they have succeeded in increasing prices. But believe it or not, airlines are still less profitable this year than they were in 2016. And the reason is fuel prices are rising like 30% and fares are rising 2 3 4%. So, they're, so they don't have the pricing power to compensate for that rising cost. Can and you maybe go into a little bit of the thinking behind using that A220 jet, that C-series jet? I mean, it only holds about 150 travelers, and most of the low-cost carriers, as I understand, they're going with something like the Airbus A321. You got it. And that's why I think it's very interesting about this, too, right, is that uh, – so David Nealman has worked before with um, with Airbus, and I think there's a little bit of uh, uh, some of the old – the Airbus getting the band back together. Um, and, and they really need to build some demand for this A220. And I think they're hoping that uh, Nealman can build a fleet of these because I mean, we think that – They give them a deal on the 60 aircraft, you think? My guess, my guess is they did – um, I think that's the big difference uh, sort of in moving this airplane from Bombardier to Airbus is you now have deeper pockets. I think as you launch an airplane, you have to be ready to take a little bit of pain, less profitability, a bunch of discounting, and, and that's what this does. He wants to fly from tertiary airports in America or maybe secondary tertiary. So you could argue that you need that smaller size because he was flying from places like Trenton you know, or Windsor Locks, Connecticut, and places like that where you're not not going to be able to fill 150 or 170 seat airplanes, but the rest of the low cost world is going to much bigger airplanes as they try to defray the cost of higher pilot salaries in the front and those higher fuel expenses. Lisa Abramowitz just wants more legroom and wants to not be charged for the oxygen that she uses on the plane. Yeah, I also, I mean, there, there are a list of things that I would like. I would like the free snacks to come back because I know free that in some snacks. places you, that's you, not acceptable. Uh-huh. I also, the whole idea of support pets that are like huge peacocks that take up they, their tires. They, they got rid of that. They, <laughs> they got rid of yeah. the peacock support pets. to one on not, a trip. Not, not a big fan of that. And um, yeah, no, I think that there are some issues. There are some issues that need to be addressed. I think Lisa wants wants to get those wings, you know, that they used to give out when you traveled on they, an airplane. They give my children those wings. Oh, you I want think, a pair of the wings. I think they still have them. Yeah. <laughs> All right, George, I want to talk to you about some news that was uh, made this week with Emirates and Etihad, uh, these uh, two uh, potent, these airline rivals. Big Middle Eastern, yeah. Exactly. And there airline. is some talk that perhaps they're going to be combining, perhaps not. They denied it. But what's the logic here? Why would it be beneficial for them to join forces? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of capacity that flies between um, Europe and Asia, right? It's a it's a big trade route. There's a lot of people that fly those routes um, that that work in in Europe or work in the connect even further into the U.S. Um, and so, uh, so because of all this sort of de- demand for flying. Airlines have added even more supply, and so you have a, you have a market that the big European carriers compete for, the big Asian carriers compete for, and the Middle Eastern carriers compete for, and the, and fares are just horrible on these routes, uh, and so you know Etihad has, hasn't had the best go of it. 
Um, they're, they're smaller than Emirates. They went after a more... Hold on a second, George. By horrible, you mean they're low? Um, yes. Okay, because when I see horrible... from the perspective I of the that's companies. Pretty, okay, carry on, George. Just carry well, on. Look, remember, shareholders do deserve a decent return, all right? And some of these, these are approaching levels that aren't a decent return for shareholders. We could debate that later on, I guess, if you want. But So Etihad hasn't had a great go of it. Emirates has been much more successful. Look, they're kind of brothers, right? They're both in in the UAE. They're in towns that are 100 kilometers, 150 kilometers apart. Uh, And I think that probably the government, the UAE, is probably pulling both of them to to get together because the Abu Dhabians are probably tired of losing money on Etihad, and they see Emirates as being more successful. And so I think the reason why this could get done in the end is that that federal government will push a lot of parties that don't want to, you know, maybe be together together to ra- rationalize this uh, this carrier, yeah. and, and that would lower some of the capacity between Europe and Southeast Asia and help fares in that part of the world. George Ferguson, thank you so much for joining us. Please do lower the prices, get us some more legroom, and uh, possibly even overhead free snacks. space, overhead space you that, that you don't have to pay for. Thank We're you. Those are our that. requests, George. We're working on all of it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.